Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Dr. Robert J. Spitzer to discuss his book, The Politics of Gun Control, 8th Edition, published by Rutledge Press in 2020. This is a classic text in political science that's been recently revised with new data on gun ownership and use, the impact of gun politics on the 2018 elections, new research on the history of American gun laws, and controversies over the geography of guns, where and when can they be carried, and whether they can be concealed. Dr. Robert J. Spitzer is a Distinguished Service Professor of Political Science at the State University of New York at Cortland, trained by Theodore Lowy. Dr. Spitzer has published books on the presidency, the right to life movement, the constitution, with several works focused on the right to bear arms, gun control, and gun rights. The Supreme Court will hear its first Second Amendment case since 2010, and Bob's article, Gun Law History in the United States and Second Amendment Rights, is cited by the Solicitor General of the United States in his amicus brief. I am delighted to welcome Bob Spitzer to the New Books Network. Thank you, Susan. It's lovely to be with you. So look, all books have origin stories. And this one began 30 years ago when you were asked to contribute a chapter to a policy issues book. And you chose gun control because you knew little except what you read in the popular press. So you brought your training in American politics to this issue. You ended up writing what is considered a classic text. So before we talk about what's new in the eighth edition, tell me a little bit about what the field of political science looks like with regard to the study of guns and politics and, and how it is that you fit into that landscape or, you know, to be clear, have shaped that landscape. Well, let me say first that when I first started writing on this subject, as you're sort of implying, it was an area that political science really didn't pay much of any attention to. Certainly in the realm of policy studies, political scientists have studied all kinds of policies, and there are lots of books that are called the politics of blank, right? The environment or healthcare or lots of other things. And it was actually back in the 1980s when I first jumped into this topic and wrote a a book chapter for a book on controversial social policy issues. And gun control was one of the issues that had not been picked by somebody else. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I don't really know much about it, but I'll do the chapter. And I did. And uh, happy to do it. Learned a lot. And it was that chapter from the 1980s that led to the aha moment for me which was, well, that there is no or was no book on the politics of gun control. And so I thought, well, that's what I'll do. And uh, that became the first edition of the Politics of Gun Control, published back in 1995. It was actually published by Chatham House Publishers. If any of the old timers remember a guy named Ed Artinian, who was always at the APSA conferences and other conferences, he was the honcho of that publishing house. And uh He boosted the book and he had said immediately that, you know, we could go, uh, we should plan for a second edition. I was like, well, okay. I was a little surprised. And that put me on the road to what is now the eighth edition that you mentioned. So tell me a little bit about, you're right, the, the, the landscape was, was bare 
Um, there have been some great policy books. Kristen Goss's book is a, a terrific book. But but tell us a little bit about what the field looks like now as this eighth edition is is coming out. Well, I, we've seen a couple of things. The first is a number of political scientists are now writing in this area, and they have produced some terrific work um, in focusing on, on various aspects. Uh, it, it is a subject matter generally that lends itself to multidisciplinary approaches. And that's one of the things that's interesting about it. And the, the, the steep learning curve for me when I got into this was to immerse myself not just in history and law and the Constitution, which I was comfortable with, but with criminology. Because, of course, you know, the criminological consequences of guns really you know, dominates our understanding for obvious reasons because of the mayhem that guns can cause whenever they are present in a human situation. And that was a lot of work for me. Um, and so there has also been evolving outside of political science, a kind of a developing area of gun studies. It goes by various names. Um, and political science is now becoming a, a part of that. And uh, it's, you know, exciting to see because when I first started writing on this, I was, uh, I hesitate to say the only political scientist, but I, I, hard to think of others who were involved in the area. It's a fairly specific subspecialty, um, but there are many involved now. And uh, I've heard from many of them. I've gotten to know some of these people and uh, it's very exciting. It's, it was uh, gratifying to sort of be on the ground floor of uh, political science studying this issue, because like so many other issues, even though it spans many disciplines, let's face it, all of it comes back to politics. And that's why, as Aristotle would have said, and many others, that's why it's kind of the fountainhead of analysis to me. Okay. And listen, and it's still the case. You and I met because I was on a panel and in a big room with some really wonderful people up on the dais, and you were one of the seven people in an enormous room. And this is not very long ago at APSA. So before we move on to the new edition, just name a couple of the people, and I know other people will be left out, but we've got a lot of people who, who, who want to understand where political science is, um, you know, on, on this issue of, of, of guns. And so, you know, what's the work just that, that it, you don't have to even get the titles right, but just the, the, a couple of people who are out there that people should be paying attention to. One of the things I've heard from editors and the rest is there's, there's hes hesitancy in terms of talking about guns. When I talk to legal scholars, they have said the same thing, that there are issues at the university level, at the publications level of a discomfort with, with talking about guns and uh, and and I again, I'm not going to offer any grand theory as to why political it's taken political science so long. But just a couple of people, in case somebody wants to read a little bit more after taking a look at your book. Well, I'll mention a couple. One is Matt Lacombe, and he is at Barnard College. He has a book called Firepower, and what this guy did, and I, I, it, it boggles the mind to me, is uh, he scanned something like 80 years worth of magazines from the NRA. And he's analyzed that massive data and he produced this great book. Uh, Mark Jocelyn has a book called The Gun Gap and uh, he has a different approach, but it's also a book that uh, delves deep using real good political science techniques, techniques I, uh, that are beyond my uh, mastery. And they've both made really important contributions uh, just in the last few years. 
Great. So this new edition is noteworthy on several accounts. And, and let's start with what new data on gun ownership and gun use reveal. Uh, you also note in the book that there's been an important change in government funding for gun research that impacts the study of guns. So c- can you elaborate on both? How have changes, uh, updates on the data, uh, and different kinds of access to data affected your observations? Okay, a couple things here. One in terms of gun ownership patterns. Contrary to what most people think, gun ownership in America has been gradually declining for over 40 years. Back in the 1960s, roughly one household in two had at least one gun in it. Today, it's around 30% or so. Um, And, you know, when you graph that down, there are short-term ups and downs, but it's an overall decline. Now, having said that, in the last couple years or so, a couple, three years, for a variety of reasons, we have seen uh, certainly an uptick in gun sales, record gun sales in the last few couple of years. And uh, most of those sales are to people who already own guns, because another part of the story is the fact that the average gun owner today owns far more guns than was true in years gone by. Back in the 1960s, the average gun owner owned about two and a half guns. Today, the average gun owner owns more than eight guns. So that explains, at least in part, the sales process. But there have been uh, more sales. It's not clear how significant to constituencies that have not been gun owners, African-Americans, for example, more women seem to be buying guns. Although, again, it's not clear that these represent real long-term trends. But Part of this dynamic is the fact that the gun industry and the NRA have, and gun rights groups have been pressing vigorously to market guns to people, utilizing fear tactics. You know, you need to be the person to protect your home uh, and your family. Uh, you need to protect yourself on the streets. And we have seen public policy changes, very significant, not received a lot of attention, where more and more states have dropped entirely state laws that require permitting, getting a permit, before you can buy and carry around a handgun. So we're now up to, I believe, 20 states. Uh, 20 years ago, there were, let me think, 25 years ago, there was one state, sorry, two states that had no permitting. Every other state had a permitting system. Today, it's up to 20. And that is an indication of the relentless political pressure from the gun rights community to roll back gun laws at the state level. So that's been a major element in this. You also mentioned gun research. Um, there is more funding coming in 2019 for the first time in uh, oh, over 20 years. The federal government, Congress approved a small amount of funding for expressly for gun research. That amount has increased some it's small compared to research in many other areas that the government funds, but it's there, it's in the budget, and it's been increasing each year. And it's symptomatic of the fact that research on on the study of guns and their consequences has been drastically underfunded for several decades. And now we're beginning to see coming that some of that funding coming into play and spreading out to researchers. No, that's great. Thank you. And just because you uh, implied it, these states that are um, assuming what they call constitutional carry, there's no permit necessary because the Second Amendment gives a direct right to that individual as compared to the three other categories we have, which are 
uh, shall issue people where, you know, if you apply for a permit and you check the boxes, the, the locality or the state must issue the gun permit or may issue, which is you apply, but there is some sort of evaluation by either local or state officials. And last, like no issue, the states that were localities that just say you cannot. And we'll talk about that later, maybe when we get to the new case that's before the Supreme Court. One of the things that's really significant about the new edition is how you dig into the 2018 elections. I really enjoyed this part of the book. Uh, For those not following American politics, Republican Donald Trump was elected in 2016, and these 2018 midterm elections resulted in the Democratic Party taking over the House of Representatives. 2018 is also the year that a former student at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, used a gun to kill 17 people physically injure 17 others. Um, So explain a little bit about what it is you've observed um, and that the book focuses on about 2018 and the importance of it politically. Yeah, the significant advances that the gun safety community made in 2018 uh, are explainable by two sets of things. Uh, The first is that we have witnessed in the last decade or so a new uh, invigorated gun safety movement. We've, we saw it, it really began after the Sandy Hook shooting in, at the Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut, this terrible shooting, you know, 20 uh, elementary school children and six uh, staff people were killed uh, by a, you know, a single gunman who then killed himself on the scene. And that so shocked and outraged so many people. I mean, I saw hardened TV correspondents holding back, trying to hold back tears when they were first reporting the story. And it was symptomatic of how shocking that event was. And that really helped spur a a number of people to enter and, and groups to form to kind of revive and invigorate the uh, gun safety movement. We saw the rise of the Bloomberg group, Every Town for Gun Safety, of the Mark Kelly, Gabriel Giffords group, um, Americans for Responsible Solutions. And these groups, to a great degree, tried to go to school on the NRA's political success. How do you do that? You raise a lot of money. Naturally, you need money in politics, although it's not everything, as our political scientists know. Um, secondly, you want to be in the game for the long term, not just a sudden burst of activity after a terrible shooting and then things die down. You've got to be in the game for the long term. And third, you want to build a grassroots movement around the country to have the real kind of firm basis for prolonged political activity. And these efforts uh, gradually built and really culminated in the 2018 midterm elections. Now, it was a time when the Democrats were going to do well. The Democratic Party, generally supportive of stronger gun laws. The Republican Party, generally opposing stronger gun laws. It's become very bifurcated between the parties, like many other issues in this polarized era. Um, And uh, so because there was a Republican in the White House, they had the expectation of making some gains in Congress. Indeed, they did. And uh, more significantly, many Democrats around the country and even a few Republicans ran expressly on a gun safety agenda and were elected, demonstrating that the issue could work for them, as it did, as it did 
indeed. And so uh, the, the sort of political moment plus the, the efforts of the gun safety movement produced those significant victories. And that led to 2018. And of course, 2020 uh, was a moment with the pandemic and other issues coming to the fore that really pushed aside most traditional issues. I mean, 2020 began, the 2020 election cycle began uh, and then uh, proceeded with uh, issues that nobody could have anticipated, the pandemic, the economic crash, and also the Black Lives Matter movement. And those uh, sort of late day issues dominated everything. And so the gun issue per se, to some degree, was pushed to the margins along with other traditional issues. And that kind of put us where we are now. Now, that's um, that's so well said. And so uh, such a succinct summary of what in the book is a very granular and detailed analysis. So I just want to say the book is is very well written. This is an accessible book for for anyone to look at. This is a book that can uh, students of any kind can use, scholars can use, but it's but it's well written and crisp. Uh, but it's not this crisp because in it it goes into such depth. So I just want to flag that for everybody listening uh, the, to get the more details by by going to the book. Um, you're also making some very broad claims about the impact of guns on politics in the period, and you've touched on some of this already. Uh, and you've mentioned that guns figured in some of these elections. I'm wondering if I can get you to say just a little bit more about, about how guns did figure in those uh, congressional, state, and local elections, and also what changes you observe in the substance of the legislation that passed in, in that period. Again, you've touched on all of this, but I'm just going to push you to go a little bit go a little bit more into the into what's in the book. Yes, the, the gun issue was very much pushed into the electoral process because going back to the, the, the first decade of the 21st century, uh, the Democrats came out of the 2000 elections. If you think back the election between Al Gore, the Democrat, and George W. Bush, the Republican, and uh, Al Gore talked very strongly about the gun issue and about promoting stronger gun laws. And even Bush himself, who came from gun-friendly Texas, indicated support for some stronger gun measures because there was a feeling that that's kind of where the country was. But of course, Gore ultimately loses that election. And the Democrats came out of 2000, the 2000 election, having taken a beating and saying to themselves, ah, the gun issue is too much trouble. It's not working well for us. And the Democrats really abandoned the gun issue for a decade. And that extended through the 2008 presidential election when Barack Obama was elected president. And Obama also avoided the gun issue in 2008. And as a matter of fact, in his first year in office, he was awarded a failing grade by the Brady Coalition, a, a pro-gun safety group, for not only not doing anything about the gun issue, but even signing a couple of pieces of legislation that included some small board, but notable uh, gun rights elements in them having to do with guns, carrying guns in national parks and on trains. Um, and so then the Sandy Hook massacre happens in 2012. It's a month after he's reelected. And he says, you know, he has a change of heart. And he said, I'm really going to push this issue, which he did. And it came to a head in the U.S. Senate where several gun measures were voted, but voted down 
They didn't get anywhere in the House of Representatives, but he continued to talk about the issue. And that was an additional factor that using purely the rhetorical side of his presidency that helped keep the issue a little more in in the public eye. And in terms of legislative activities, Congress little involved, accepting the votes that were held in the spring of 2013 in the United States Senate. Uh, But what we did see from 2013 on was furious activity in the states. And this is a classic federalism moment where the federal government really is not acting, even though, let me emphasize that the political backdrop of the gun issue is that not only majorities, but large majorities of Americans consistently support virtually every gun measure that you can think of that we have debated as a country in the last decade or so. But for reasons that, of course, my book talks about, public preferences don't always result in public policy. This is not a new revelation in political science by any means, but it's notable on this issue. So the federal government, Congress did virtually nothing within the last decade or so in terms of uh, legislation and public policy, but there has been furious activity in the states. And we've seen kind of a bifurcation of activity where a number of liberal states, about a dozen liberal states, have moved aggressively to enact stronger gun laws. States like New York, Massachusetts, Maryland, California, and others, whereas more conservative states moved in the other direction and actually loosened existing gun laws, partly to make a political statement on their part to say that we don't believe gun laws matter and we believe gun rights are more important. But regardless of which side a person falls on, you could see and continue to see this kind of vigorous activity at the state level. And especially in conservative states, the gun rights community has been, I'd say, very successful in rolling back traditional gun laws, including concealed carry laws, which we talked a little bit about earlier. And uh, that's been a a very important change. And that has kind of led to this moment where the Supreme Court is now considering a case that comes from New York State and is a challenge to New York State's fairly strict concealed carry law. Yeah. And before we move to that, which is right where we're going, did any uh of the state legislature members or governors who spearheaded these more conservative gun laws suffer in any way electorally, given the public opinion in many of these states still favors moderate gun control? Generally speaking, we have not seen specific uh, state leaders being electorally punished for their positions on the gun issue. There, there are certainly, there are surely exceptions around the country that don't come to mind, but by and large, no. And this also goes to a couple of things. One is that most people are not single issue voters or single issue gun voters. Those, the, the sub-segment of voters that are single issue gun voters, and maybe it's around, let's call it 15%, most of them are gun rights people, not gun safety people. So they don't constitute anything like a majority, but they do have ability to provide certain pressure at key points at key times. But the degree of actual uh, electoral punishment is remarkably slim, I would say. Uh, And the other point about that is that most voters not only are not single issue voters, 
But the gun issue, while important to people, is pretty far down on the list of people's issue priorities. People generally focus more on the economy or the environment or, you know, many gasoline prices, inflation, lots of other things. So it's unusual that the gun issue will rise up on that list. And that, by the way, is one of the anomalies about the 2018 midterm elections, because nationwide surveys showed that the gun issue was a top three, four, five issue in 2018 for most voters. And that's unusual um, for it to have risen to that degree. And that, that was an indication of a success from the gun safety movement. So as uh, and and these issues of saliency, which are often um, coincident with these horrific moments of violence that, that get attention because they happen every day. I mean, there's gun violence every day, but they don't all get the same Sandy Hook uh, or um, uh, Parkland attention. What do you as as you think about all of these trends that you've observed and cataloged in the book? What do you think about how Biden is doing so far? And what do you think about the midterms that are coming up? Do, will we see gun regulation or gun rights be an issue in the, these midterm elections? How important might they be? Or, or are we locked into this position in which gun rights people are single issue voters and the gun safety people have it as part of their menu of important issues? Vice President, sorry, Vice President, President Joe Biden, he was <laughs> Vice President, of course, for eight years under Barack Obama. President Biden has a long history of supporting stronger gun laws. He was one of the key players for the enactment of the Brady Law in 1993, background check law, and the assault weapons ban 1994, also passed by Congress. So he entered the campaign in 2020 with that pedigree supporting stronger gun laws. and. Uh, uh, gun safety community was hardened and, you know, glad to have him running for that reason alone, although other Democrats talked about the gun issue, too. Since being elected, uh, Biden has found, and my guess is it doesn't come as a surprise to him, that the gun issue has just had has just dropped down the list, not because he doesn't care about it, but because of the polarized political environment because of the fact that the Democrats' control of Congress is razor thin in both houses, and because he has a very crowded issue agenda. We've seen the focus on the economic rescue packages, the $3.5 trillion package that has now apparently been negotiated to down to about $1.8 trillion, I guess, that he's pushing very hard and hoping to get through Congress. Uh, immigration reform environmental uh, regulations. There's so much on his foreign policy, so much on his plate. The gun issue just isn't making the list. The gun safety people are certainly not happy about that, understandably so. But it's hard for me as a political scientist to chastise him very much just because of the political environment that he faces. And his popularity has been sagging as well. That hurts him too. So Biden has done what is left to him to do at this juncture, which is to push administrative rule changes and, of course, arguments in court through the Solicitor General, the Attorney General's office, uh, with respect to cases before the courts now. And uh, I, with respect to the midterm elections next year, 2022, it strikes me that the gun issue 
could play a factor, but probably not very much. One of the things that tends to bring the gun issue back into the fore is fear of crime and rising crime rates. We have seen increases in crime and crime rates of violent crime, although notably not an increase in nonviolent crime. So that's a good thing. Uh, Crime in every category has been gradually declining since the early 1990s. America has become a more and more safe place, objectively speaking, if you just look at the statistics. But we have seen an uptick in the last couple of years of violent crime and murder. Obviously, that's a deeply disturbing trend. And that concern has gotten a lot of attention. It may help to propel the gun issue into the 2022 race to some degree. And of course, given the influx of new issues in the 2020 election cycle, it's doubly difficult to predict what's going to really drive the 2022 election. But we do know that the Democratic Party faces a structural problem, which is that the president's political party almost always loses seats in the House of Representatives in a midterm year. And they've only have a, they only have a, a majority margin in the House of a few seats anyway. So it looks like an uphill battle for the Democrats. They could make headway there. They could maintain control of the Senate. Uh, I wouldn't hazard a guess on that. But it's going to be a, a tough struggle for them. And Biden knows that the clock is ticking on him come what may in 2022. Let me pull us back to the book for just a minute. Since Heller and McDonald, we've seen an explosion in research on American gun laws and the British common laws upon which some of them were based. And in Heller, justices Scalia and Stevens, on very different sides in the case, each argued that, quote unquote, history was on their side. And since McDonald in 2010, we've seen an explosion of excellent scholarship on American gun laws. Duke University Center for Firearms Law has a remarkable searchable and public database. You've contributed to this effort. And we'll talk about your contribution to the Supreme Court brief in in just a minute. But what does this new research tell us about early American laws? The, The new research is really interesting. And I will say that I've participated in some of that research. I've drawn extensively on the uh, the historical gun laws that have been accumulated by Duke University. It's a it's a fabulous resource. It's available to anybody, and I've used it a, a, gr- a great deal for my own work. And of course, just as you're suggesting, the Heller case really turned ever more a focus to our gun law past, precisely because Justice Scalia, in his majority opinion, wrote what he said was perhaps the most history driven decision that he had authored, at least up until 2008, and many of us have commented on that. But here's the thing, and I'll, this is a, a value judgment, but uh, it's one that I think is pretty clear, and that is to say that the history that the majority opinion in the Heller decision presented was an accurate reading of gun law history only if you're standing on your head at the time. That is to say, the Scalia majority opinion just got the history wrong. I mean, it just did. And if anything, if we've learned anything since 2008, it's that the weight of evidence supports that even more strongly. In point of fact, as, as a, a member of the United States Senate commented, the Constitution's founders loved gun laws. And here's the, here's the, the key thing. America has been a gun-owning nation since its earliest beginning, since the first Europeans landed 
uh, in the North American continent in the early 1600s. They always they had guns with them. They brought guns with them. We have always had guns. But the other part of the story is that we have always had gun laws. Not only is gun ownership as old as America, but gun laws are as old as America. Not only that, we have had literally thousands of gun laws of every imaginable variety enacted by our forebears in the 1600s, the 1700s, the 1800s. Your listeners cannot think of any gun law today that didn't exist hundreds of years ago. Uh, And and that includes uh, gun confiscation laws. And I have just been utterly and endlessly fascinated by not only the variety of gun laws, but the way they were written and the things that they regulated. And here we're talking about in the colonies, in the states, and in localities, not the federal government. But, of course, the states had colonies and states. That's where the action was, especially early in our history. So gun laws and gun regulations existed perfectly well with any understanding of gun rights. The idea that these two things are a zero-sum game, where a gain for one is a loss for the other, is a new idea. It's really only in the last few decades we've seen that dynamic playing out. In most of our history, gun laws and gun rights perfectly compatible. It was just not the kind of political controversy that it has become as the issue has been politicized in the last few decades. And that to me is really, those are kind of the bottom line messages of our gun law history. And you mentioned hundreds of years. Um, This podcast is going to drop two days before the Supreme Court hears a case on concealed carry. That law dates from 1911. New York State has required a license for concealed carry. And the Supreme Court is now going to review their justification of proper cause that they have been using since for 100 years. Um, Before we talk more specifically about this case and how your research contributes to the case being made by New York, um, what trends does the book observe with regard to civilians carrying guns, for example, on college campuses or the establishment of gun-free zones or the rise of what are are sometimes called the, the Second Amendment sanctuaries? What because I think actually this is part of the background of this case is this fight over or where people can have, um, where civilians can have guns. So the, the book deals with this just briefly. What, where are we on this as a, as an, as a, <laughs> I was going to say as a nation, but that is to undercut one of the really important contributions of the book, which is, this is not about the nation. This is about federalism and localities. Yes. I, I would say that, the key message about gun carrying, gun proliferation, is that the goal of the gun rights movement and the gun industry has been to press as many guns into as many hands as possible, both for financial commercial reasons. After all, the gun industry makes its money by selling guns. And they also face the problem that a gun is a very durable commodity. A gun can last for many decades with the very minimal degree of care. But if you're selling a very durable commodity, where's the turnover, right? Where's the profitability? And this is something that the gun industry has struggled with for, well, ever since the rise of the modern gun industry. And of course, with respect to the gun rights movement, their core base of support is gun owners. So the more gun owners, uh, the greater the potential base of support. And so we have seen in pol- in politics and in 
efforts to change public policy, especially at the state and local level, uh, steps to not only loosen gun laws, but to make it easier for people to carry guns in as many places as possible. That's why we've seen very notably, just as you're alluding to, a movement to spread uh, the idea of civilian gun carrying on college campuses, a move that has been uniformly resisted and opposed by college administrators, faculty, staff, and students. This is a move that has been imposed by state legislatures, even though you know, campuses around the country do have, you know, chapters of students who, you know, want to be able to carry guns on campuses um, and carrying, you know, laws allowing gun carrying in other places like churches or public buildings or at mass demonstrations. And again, the, the bottom line uh, political thrust is to make guns more normal somehow, to put them in more hands and to understand that that is the political base for that that movement. And that also takes us, I think, to the Supreme Court case that they are considering uh, this year, which would, if depending on how it comes out, of course, which could modify or even roll back New York's traditional, fairly strict concealed carry law. And I should add one other thing, which is part of my research has been to do some real gun stuff, to put it that way. And among the things I have done and written about is I obtained a concealed carry pistol permit here in New York State. And I have that permit. I went through the process. It was very interesting. And to my way of thinking, it operated perfectly well, even though you had to you know, do, do a number of things to, to get a permit. But that's the law that's being challenged right now. Um, and and just because you've alluded to this, the, the, the states that have these strict laws are few in number, but big in population. So when we're talking about California, New York, Massachusetts, New Jersey, uh, we're talking about 25% of the population, even though we're talking about a very small number um, of states. So You've seen the briefs in the new Supreme Court case, which is New York State Rifle and Pistol versus Bruin. Uh, we've yet to hear the oral arguments. They're coming in two days. Uh, what will you be looking for? And, and what are your thoughts on this case and how it might impact the ability of states and localities to, to regulate guns? As people who follow the courts know, it's always a hazardous activity to try and predict anything that the courts or the Supreme Court might do. Oral argument will certainly be important, though, because we know that the questioning of the justices pretty clearly gives an indication of what their thinking is on the case that they're hearing oral argument about. So it'll certainly be a very interesting moment. I will say, however, that the challenge to New York's law could yield three broad possible outcomes. One is that they uphold the law. The other is that they strike down a portion of it or rule in a limited way to to direct the state legislature to redraft the law, something of the sort. Or the third is that they could strike the law down entirely and say that a strict law, a, the May issue law in New York, just is a violation of Second Amendment rights. And I will say one thing and offer one prediction, which is that the Supreme Court majority, the Supreme Court conservatives who wanted to hear this case did not agree to hear it in order to uphold the law. The Supreme Court is just not going to uphold the New York state law as far as I'm concerned. So I think that is just past the boards at this point, given in particular how very, very conservative 
the court is right now. And this suggests a larger pattern, which is something I've been writing about recently, and other people have too, which is that since the Heller decision in 2008, we've seen the courts, especially during the Trump era, become extremely conservative, ever more conservative, more conservative even than Republican-appointed judges of past eras. And to me, they are poised to significantly widen the definition of gun rights. And I think that this New York case is likely to be the leading edge of that movement. Okay. And for those who aren't following it, this would be the first time that a gun rights case would be be heard in over a decade. And the three justices appointed by uh, former President Trump uh, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and Amy Coney Barrett would all be voting. It takes four justices to get a case taken, uh, five, uh, and and here it's a 6-3 majority, and with uh, Roberts and Alito having voted previously and Thomas in this case. So we, we know where some people stand. We don't know where the new people stand, but I, I, we have guesses as to where they might stand. Uh, Robert, you alluded to new work. Tell me what it is that you're writing now and what we can look forward to in a future New Books podcast. I've just finished uh, writing a new book. I've sent it off to the publisher, and uh, it should be out next year around this time, I would think. And the title of the book is at least draft title is The Gun Dilemma. And what I'm, the the launching pad for the book is the current court environment of not only conservative justices, but ultra conservative justices uh, who really, you know, very carefully vetted and recruited by conservative legal organizations like the Federalist Society. And one of the key benchmarks or litmus tests is fealty to gun rights. And there are other issues, too, which have been very much in the news. And to me, this sets the stage for a widening of gun rights. And I follow this through by looking at a number of very contemporary gun-related subjects that mostly have not received much, if any, attention. I look at the controversy over assault weapons, over the regulation of large-capacity magazines, ammunition magazines, the history and effort to deregulate gun silencers. And let me say that there are court cases today where judges, federal judges, have said that there is a Second Amendment right to own a gun accessory, including a large capacity ammunition magazine, and even including a gun silencer. Now, you don't need a gun silencer to run a top right a gun, right? But there is that kind of movement. Will it succeed? I don't know. But it's symptomatic to me of this enlarging the definition of gun rights. I also examine the historical and contemporary disputes over gun brandishing and display in public forums. We've seen a rise of gun carrying at public demonstrations in the last couple of years. It's a deeply disturbing trend to most people. That actually has a very, very, very long gun law history. And all of these issues do in ways that are just fascinating to me. I really enjoyed working on this project so much. And I also look at the Second Amendment sanctuary movement, I will say, which uh, found root in my home county here in upstate New York, where uh, some townships enacted Second Amendment sanctuary resolutions, which say that we think 
uh, new gun laws violate our Second Amendment rights, and we're just going to ignore those laws. We're just not going to carry them out, or we're even going to penalize people if they try to carry out state and federal gun laws that we think are violations of the Second Amendment. Now, that sounds like a movement that can't go anywhere, really, for obvious reasons, but its existence around the country is also another way of mapping this new sort of 2.0 gun rights movement. And I, I'm really, uh, 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 I've learned a great deal from this project. And it's not just about contemporary stuff. All of these issues are deeply rooted in gun law past. And that is illuminating. And let me just add one other thing, which is I'm not a constitutional originalist who believes that modern constitutional interpretation should rise and fall strictly on what the people back in 1787 or 1789 said and did. But it is important that we know our history, that we understand it as best we can, and it can educate us in terms of the decisions we make now. So that's where I stand on that question. Uh, Last week on the podcast, we had uh, Joseph Bloker and Jake Charles from Duke talking uh, about this new case. And one of the things that uh, Joseph Bloker uh, expanded upon was his own front of the court brief in this upcoming case that that asks for a different way of adjudicating other than originalism. And and my observation from uh, the work that I would do uh, do on the um, Second Amendment is that and I think in Heller, uh, history became this way for both Stevens and uh, Scalia to try to defend their position. Teeny tiny bit from Breyer, who referred to these revolutionary laws that said you had to separate, for example, your ammunition from your gun, even in your own home. Uh, but I think what we see since 2008, 2010 is a proliferation of historians who support gun uh, safety, gun regulation, contributing an enormous amount of scholarship. I don't think we see the same kind of expansion on the side that uh, Justice Scalia was uh, arguing, in part because it's not there. And it's very thin. And what we see is a lot of repeating of the same of the same sources. So I, I do think what's one of the things that's very interesting is that there is a, uh, a temptation, for example, on the part of gun regulation and gun safety people to say, oh, look, we were supported by the original understanding. But that is to give in on something that is way larger than this issue, that that is to give in on, on an approach to the Constitution that is really radical and fairly new to um, the American constitutional system. So I, I think that this I think your book I think this discussion, your new book, is is really important to how not just how we think about guns, because what what's uh, some of the trends that are driving guns have implications for just about every other issue that comes before the Supreme Court. That is certainly true, and I, as part of my side argument, I do talk about originalism, and as many have noted the originalism paradigm really has in many respects overtaken court doctrine, legal writing, everybody sort of is, is engaging, no, I, wouldn't, I shouldn't say everybody, but many are engaging all kinds of legal issues in originalist terms. I mean, the good thing is that we're learning a lot about our past, which is all good. The bad thing is that originalism to me is a concept 
that ultimately collapses of its own dead weight, including for reasons like the founders agreed on almost nothing, the fact that they themselves were dubious about the whole idea that what they were doing was something that should be held as immutable throughout history, uh, and and many other you know considerations that simply make originalism as a paradigm for parsing modern law and public policy problems. I think just a, a dead end. I mean, I, I just think philosophically it just doesn't sustain itself. Although it obviously continues to have its many you know adherents. And it has shifted the nature of legal debate in many ways. No, and the pluralism in the founders, and I never capitalize the founders because it it implies something that simply isn't there, means that, and this is a point I've made in my own research, that that means that you can manipulate the original understanding to your own position. So originalism just becomes uh, a, 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 a tactic, actually, to get what you want, to find the history that you want and put it behind it. It's something Scalia did. Uh, you talked very earlier in the in the podcast about you know guns that say you can protect your family. Well, heads of households at both the founding and uh, the second founding at the thirteenth fourteenth amendment they they included a particular form of patriarchy that I'm not so sure that that we want to import. But it is the original understanding of the document document that women don't have legal personhood. So anyway, I loved. Looking at this book again, looking at the new edition, uh, I recommend it to all, and I can't wait to read your new book. Uh, It sounds like it's exactly the book that we need in political science, and thank you for the generous uh, endorsement of some of the stuff that's out there. There's more, uh, but it, it it is something that needs more attention in political science, and it's so great to talk to you about about this book and where you're going with your scholarship. Susan, it's been wonderful speaking with you, and you conduct a wonderful interview. Oh, thank you. Well, this is Robert J. Spitzer's The Politics of Gun Control, 8th edition from Rutledge Press 2020. We'll we'll have a link to buy it on the show page. And uh, thanks so much for listening.